0: Chapter two. We will be reading the first 11 verses from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worth, But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. That's the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much. For the blessing of corporate worship, Lord, we're grateful to be brought together to study your word, Lord, to study the ministry of your son, Jesus Christ, and this first miracle that he performed as a part of his earthly adult ministry, Lord. Father, we ask that your word be magnified here, Lord, that your son be the sole object of our attention, Lord, that the speaker be minified and that no air be Spoken here this morning, Lord. We ask this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So you probably remember that we've been working our way through the book of John. And maybe we've been working slowly. Maybe we've been working at a pace that you're comfortable with. I'm really enjoying our time together in this book. I've said it before. John is and. People push back. I've gotten a little pushback on this. People don't like to hear that John is the holiest book in the Bible, and perhaps that is going too far to say that, but I read it, and I am lifted up by it. I see Christ in every word. John's purpose, as we've mentioned before, is to divulge to his people, to the Lord's people, the divinity of Christ. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke known as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means same view, Gospels, and that's why they share very similar events, lots of overlap between the Synoptic Gospels. And John comes, and John writes his Gospel, probably in the aftermath of the Synoptic Gospels, and he's laying out what he he thought was missing from those Gospels, meaning they did not clearly enough convey to the people at the time that Christ is God. And that's why he begins with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh. And we studied the ministry of John the Baptist, different John. (laughs) And now, and we studied a little bit about how those first six disciples are called to Jesus. And so we come to chapter two and every word is rich. Every word has meaning. We could spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to try to move very quickly through this first miracle of our Lord. And now the purpose of this first miracle, I think, and most commentators agree with this, it is to share with us something about the character of our Lord, something very important about who God is and what his priorities are. He did not arbitrarily Choose to make his first miracle this turning of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. It was a part of the plan of salvation. There are no accidents, there are no coincidences with God. He is an author, He is the author of creation, and there is a plan to all of this. And this is not a random accident. This was done on purpose through our God, our Lord's providential will. So it was on the third day, and immediately we should. Our ears should perk up because the third day is very meaningful in Christian theology. First of all, three is a the number of the Trinity. It's a number of holiness. It's uh, on the third day he was risen again after the crucifixion. So we know this is important because on the third day, probably after the miracle with Nathaniel, um, it's interesting that we say this is the first miracle of his earthly ministry because he did have this, the vision of Nathaniel under the, the fig tree. I'm just going to point that out there because I found it sort of interesting that we all see this as the first miracle. Um, But it is three days after he sees Nathaniel at the fig tree and brings the six disciples unto him. And there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. So this is very close to Nazareth. If Nazareth was a small town of less than 500 people, Cana was a very small town not even a town so much as like an agrarian meeting place. There would have been a few dozen people living in this area, but they're coming together from all the surrounding areas. This would have been very much like this congregation. Everybody knows each other. Everybody is related by a few removals. It's a very tight knit community coming together for this wedding and Jewish weddings. There were laws, there were regulations, there are rabbinical writings. This was a very, orchestrated events. They would have ha- it would have happened on a different day for a virgin that would have happened for a widow. It would have taken the course over 3 days or even a week. A long extravagant wedding. It would have been the most important uh, sort of non-feast celebration that they have together. This would have been in the planning for years. The father of the bridegroom would be storing up wine for his entire life to be ready for the wedding of his son. And so when we complain about weddings being expensive today and all the pomp and circumstance of weddings today, remember that 2000 years ago, they were doing it for days on end and they orchestrated their whole lives around it so that they could have a huge wedding that would bring honor to their to, to the son, to the bridegroom in Cana of Galilee. So the mother of Jesus was there. That's Mary. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Again, all of these people are from the same area. They're all called. They're all invited to this wedding. Primitive Baptists do a beautiful job of this where they invite whole churches to weddings, and that's the way it ought to be. You know, we, uh, the secular world has made the wedding a sort of closed-off event, and you're, like, picking and choosing who's going to come to the wedding. Well, this would have been, hey, you and your family, everybody's invited to this wedding. We're going to do it for three days for a week. It's going to be a big, big event. And when they wanted wine, meaning when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? This is an interesting saying. First of all, he calls her woman. This is, if I were to call any woman, woman today, it would come off as discourteous and rude. And you couldn't even say to someone lady, it would just come off as rude. Uh, This is more like if I were to say ma'am or or, you know, if you go back further in English, like, old, oh, like my lady, like it is a courteous reply to say, woman, what have I to do with thee? What have I to do with thee is a Semitic idiom. Okay. They, it comes up, uh, David says it, um, uh, the woman who, uh, it, it deals with Elijah says it to Elijah. It's really like saying, what does this have to do with you and I, right? This is what we would say. What does this have to do with you and I? It's not our wedding. We're not the host of this wedding. What does this have to do with you and I? Mine hour is not yet come. This is an interesting, so the, the statement's interesting because he basically uh, uses two idioms, one that's already popular in the, in the culture of the time and the other that he makes popular. Mine hour is not yet come. He says this seven times in the book of John. Mine hour is not yet come. And then the last time he says, my hour is come because this is the hour of the passion. This is the hour of the, the real great miracle. Up until the passion, all these miracles are signs, evidences, but the passion is the great the 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 death and resurrection of christ is the greatest of the miracles it is the culmination of history it is the center of all human events it is uh what we are looking forward to throughout the book of john so let's keep our eyes on it as we move through this book mine hour is not yet come his mother saith unto the servants whatsoever he saith unto you do it whatsoever he saith unto you do it this is a very beautiful sort of interaction between mother and son but we should point out that because he's calling her woman the only other time he's he this kind of language with reference to mary is from the cross when he says woman behold your son talking about john the disciple and and then he says behold your mother to john and he's saying this period of our familial relationship wherein i'm obligated to honor you as mother and obey you as mother is past i'm now doing my father's work and this is a, it's funny because other denominations will use this this scripture as a justification to pray to mary for example but the whole point of the language that he's using here is to convey a distancing between himself and his and his earthly mother at the time because he's now about his father's business but His mother has faith, and his mother saith unto the servants, great advice, good advice for all of us. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Listen to this man and do what he says. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were set there, six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. We know from scripture, the Jews were a hygiene conscious people. They were washing their hands con- constantly. These would have been the types of pots that they were storing water in for the purpose of washing their hands. That's what it means when it says after the purifying of the Jews. Containing two or three firkins apiece. A firkin is something like Different sources say like nine to ten gallons. So basically, between the six water pots, we're looking at somewhere between like 108 and 180 gallons of water. Okay. Now, my understanding is that a bathtub is like 50 gallons. So we're looking at like three bathtubs of wine. It's a lot of wine. Okay. If you've thrown parties, you know, I used to throw parties in college, and we would take a trash can and put a, and clean it out and put a plastic bag in it and fill it. And that is a lot for like an evening of, of, you know, partying with your friends, Uh, but they're going for days on end. They are probably having much bigger parties than we're used to. And that's a lot of water. (laughs) Fill the water pots with water. He says, Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. They filled them to the brim. They it's, there's no more room. Okay. This is not a magic trick. They're not mixing water with wine. There's no magic here. It is. They're filling the water pots to the brim with water. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. So that's where the miracle takes place. Between verses 7 and 8 is where the miracle took place. But Before the drawing, but after the filling. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. So the ruler of the feast is like the MC. He's kind of like the event planner or, you know, when if you have a funeral, you hire someone to sort of orchestrate the funeral it's very similar kind of role we don't have an exact i mean it's kind of like an event planner but it's not an exact um analog there but the ruler of the feast tastes the wine that was made the water that was made wine and he did not know whence it was he doesn't know where it comes from but the servants knew the servants knew and this is where we really get to part of the character of our lord That He's performing his first miracle and he's performing the first miracle with an audience of his mother and the servants at the party. The governor didn't know the bridegroom doesn't know none of the it's not a public miracle in the sense that he's not getting up in front of everybody and putting on display his power, which he very easily could have done. It's demonstrating to us the humility of our Lord, but also the power, great power, but great humbleness. That he should only demonstrate this to his servants. The other thing that this demonstrates is his relationship to people. You know, we are told that the last will be made first and the servant will be greatest of all. And there are blessings in being servants, in being of service, that only come... When you are in that station, when you are performing the role of a servant, that you will be blessed with miracles and, 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 and sights of power by our Lord that you don't get blessed with when you're in a position of honor, when you're the governor of the feast, when you're even the bridegroom at the wedding. So the servants are the ones who bear witness to the first miracle of our Lord. And the governor of the feast calls the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine. We all know this because we still do this today. I mean, if, if you go to parties, they still do this today. They put the good stuff out first. And then by the end of the night, you're pulling things out of the cupboard and it's a bad look, right? It is a demonstration of the character of our Lord that he saves the best for last, that the end is better than the beginning, Mm -hmm. that we are looking forward to something that is greater than what we currently have. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. This is the beginning of the miracles. There are a number of miracles in uh, the Gospel of John. I kind of mentioned there, there's a traditional view of this. There's seven or eight miracles in the traditional historical view of this. I, I think if you just, I think that the the historical, the traditional view here is uh, worthy of paying attention to. But at the same time, you do get things like the vision of Nathaniel under the fig tree, and there's just there's even more. Like it says, all the miracles that he performed cannot be kept in all of the books uh, on earth. But this is just the beginning of miracles that he did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. He's manifesting his glory. What does that mean? It means that he's making apparent his power. He's he is the light. He's shining forth. And that light that shines within us that we are told not to keep under a basket that we are told not to hide. This is the same light. And it's his disciples believe on him. His disciples believe on him. Now. Now. All of this, to wrap it all up, we've learned that he's coming out of a period of his life and he's entering into his public ministry. His relationship with his mother is changing. He's now got disciples. People are starting to talk about this man who John the Baptist has called the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God. So it's a moment of transition. His, his earthly ministry is beginning. And he demonstrates to us his character, his humility, his humility, his servant's heart, he demonstrates what he does in the heart of man, which is he takes water, which is without flavor, without aroma. It's just, it's just water, right? It is, it's, it's colorless, it's flavorless, it's water. And he makes it wine. What does wine do? It cheers the heart is what the Bible says. You give wine to someone who is despairing. And this is what God does. He tells us to do things. He tells us to fill a water pot to the brim. And when we obey, He does the work of making something good out of that. He's doing the work of making something good out of our obedience. And in reality, it's His word. He's the author of the whole story. He commands, he writes obedience into the heart of man, and then he, 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 he writes a miracle into the whole thing just to display what? His glory, to manifest his glory, his power, to shine forth his light. This is the character of God that he uses man as an instrument of his honor, of his glory, of his perfection, that we are just tools in the hands of an almighty God. And that was just the beginning. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together this morning studying the gospel of John, Lord. We are thankful for this example of the Lord's miraculous power, Lord. We're grateful that we would see that he would stand in the breach between this couple and their shame and their embarrassment. And that he would demonstrate to us his power and his love for us, Lord, by making the first miracle of his earthly ministry, turning water into wine. And it might seem a small thing, Lord, but it's not a small thing because it is what our Lord chose to do. It is what he chose to do is to not not for his first miracle. He didn't choose to heal a leper. He didn't choose to uh, calm a storm. But he chose to turn water into wine. He chose to turn nothing into something. He chose to turn embarrassment and shame and a failed party into joy and into celebration, Lord. And that tells us something about your son, Father. It tells us something about your son, something that we can learn from and something that we can emulate and we can try to follow, Lord. And we just ask that you would bless us with that ability, Lord, that you would bless our hearts to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this all in his precious and holy name. Amen.
1: appreciate what Brother Danny's brought forth and desire and interest in your prayers the time that we stand before you. I've been asked before by folks that... uh, Uh, I've come in contact with that when they hear the name Primitive Baptist or if they've heard about Primitive Baptist, they'll say, why are you a Primitive Baptist? Sometimes folks know a little bit about it and sometimes folks don't. And sometimes folks are intrigued with the name Primitive. Uh, That throws up some um, questions. The term Primitive is... Uh, means, if you look it up, first or original, as far as the, the term, the meaning of Primitive Baptist. I've thought back over my life, and why am I a Primitive Baptist? I can share with you three areas that I feel like have been important to me, and I trust they are to you as well. Three areas. I grew up in a different, attending a different denomination. I grew up going to a denomination where we were taught that when you uh, reach 12 years of age, you are now at the age of accountability. Before that time, um, your sins are covered by the grace of God. But when you reach 12 years of age, you need to do something. You need to uh, accept the Lord As your savior, you need to make a profession before other people and you need to follow in gospel baptism. Those things are very important. But I was taught that you needed to do those things in order to get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life and to secure your home in heaven. And I can remember the pastor scheduling a meeting with my mother Uh, As I was 11 and a half years of age, I'm not sure how he knew that I was about to be 12. But I remember him telling me across the desk that um, when you turn 12, you're now going to be accountable for your sins. And I remember thinking, you mean I haven't been up to this point? And that's the question that came to mind. So the first thing that came to mind is that if indeed uh, Christ saves folks that are less than 12 years of age in one format, then he must have a different format for folks that are past 12 years of age. And so that sort of perplexed my thinking, but I didn't know that there was any other um, principles that were taught in the Bible at all. So when I was about 12 and a half, I went to spend the summer with my grandparents and, They lived down in Central Texas, not far from where Brother David's family uh, lived, down in Comanche, Central Texas. And I went with my grandparents to a a weekend meeting. They called them, uh, in some cases, they'd call them Fifth Sunday meetings or association meetings. And it's where a bunch of churches would come together, and they would have church for about three days. Uh, Start on Thursday evening, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. This was out in the country it was out under an old brush arbor outside. Remember the coffee? That's before I drank coffee. But I remember they made it in this great big cast iron uh, pot. I mean, huge pot. Um, wasn't quite as big as a bathtub, but it was this great big, huge pot with a with a campfire underneath it. And they would just pour cans of coffee in there, and so when you scoop it up into your cans, you'd you'd get some coffee grounds as well uh, along the way, but. It was a very backwards, backwoods setting, but it was my first exposure to, on a consistent basis, to the fellowship. And over that period of three days, I witnessed a love among a people, a lot of older folks, Some young folks. And I not only witnessed the love that they had, but I experienced it as well. I witnessed it, and I experienced it. Didn't know the doctrine. Never heard about the doctrine. But I witnessed the fellowship and the love that they had. And it drew my heart toward these people that I'd never met before. The songs that we sing now that, we're, that are familiar to us were very unfamiliar to me. I remember hearing those songs for the first time and and how that somehow there's something in my heart that was drawn to those old songs that are now so very precious to me. I remember hearing the preaching of the gospel. I don't remember the messages specifically. I remember one about prayer, but don't remember any about specific areas of doctrine. But it ministered to me as a 12-year-old child. And it was different than what I had experienced in the past. I experienced the fellowship. I witnessed the love. I experienced that and I saw it. And I remember thinking, when I go back home, when I get my driver's license, the first thing I'm going to do is look up a primitive Baptist church in the town in which I live. Mm. And so... I've shared this with you before. I was 15 years old when they, uh, when you turned 15, you could get your hardship license that would allow you to go to work and to school. And I just tacked on church on that as well. But I was so excited that I was, I was standing at the door of the motor vehicle on my 15th birthday. And I remember when they clicked the lock and opened the door, I was the first one in there. To get my driver's license. I was so excited. And the next week. I looked up and went to the local. Primitive Baptist Church. Had not been there before. But I went and started going. And continued going. So the first thing that. Drew me. To the church. Was the love and fellowship of the people. We talked last week about. First Corinthians chapter 13 and how that the greatest of faith and hope and charity is charity itself. And charity, uh, when it is being manifested among God's people, other people pick up on it as well. And it ministers to them, even if they don't yet understand the doctrine. Even if the practice is a little bit strange, not witnessed A practice like we have, if the love is there and the love is manifest, it has a drawing effect. My pastor that's now with the Lord uh, in uh, Brother George Johnson used to say he'd say, "I, I, I, I count it a blessing to just love folks into the church. That was his approach. He didn't take the doctrine and hammer it over their head and try to convince them. But he said, I just want to love folks into the church. And then all of a sudden, the doctrine and the practice would follow. Those things would come later. But he would love folks into the church. Here's a good verse for us to take a hold of. And this one meant a lot to me in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see... And ask for the old paths. So it, it apparently tells us we're not to be looking for something that's new. But we're to be looking for something that is tried and proven. And uh, has been there a long time. And he says, he says, stand in the ways. And see and ask for the old paths. And he says, and by the way, wherein is the good way? So you want to find the right way. You start looking at some old paths, not some old ruts that maybe somebody's established along the way. But you go all the way back to the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And that's the old paths to go all the way back to there. And so he says. Ask for the old paths. is the good way. And then he says, when you find the old paths, you walk therein. You don't just admire them. You don't just uh, think about them. You actually walk in the old paths. And he says... Walk in the old paths, Walk therein, and he says, "And if you walk therein, he says, there's another blessing." I appreciated the message that you brought, and and God does bless the obedience. And right here's an example of it. He says, "Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way. Walk therein, and he said, and you'll find rest for your souls. Anybody need rest for their souls?" You look for the old paths, you find the old paths, you walk in the old paths, and God says, I'm going to bless your soul with a measure of rest. Now, that's a great blessing for us here in this life. But you know what? The folks that he was talking to, they said, we will not walk therein. Hmm. A lot of folks, for whatever reason, choose not. He said, we'll not walk therein. Then he said, I sent watchmen over you saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. And they said, but will not hearken. I mean, that's just how stubborn and rebellious oftentimes we find ourselves to be. So I want to talk to you about the three areas that drew me to the primitive Baptist. When folks ask me, why are you primitive Baptist? Uh, I don't worship the name Primitive Baptist. In fact, it'd suit me fine if if we had a different name. I'm fine with the word primitive. It it fits the description that we have. But I don't worship the name primitive. I'm I'm thankful that it describes us. I'm not offended by it. Used to be just a little bit, but I'm not now. And so it doesn't, um, uh, I, I, I like it, but if it was a different name, I, it's not the name that we worship, it's what it represents and what it means. We don't worship the name Primitive Baptist. So the first thing was the was the fellowship. And do you know that that ought to be the first thing that folks sense? When they come to Mount Carmel is the love that we have one toward another. Mm -hmm. That should be what draws them. Uh, Blessed be the tie that binds. I'll never forget when Sister Polk walked in. The the front door used to be in that hall at the end of the hall there before we had this addition here. And when Sister Polk walked in the front door of the church, uh, she and Brother Polk for the first time, she said we had passed that little building for 40 years. And said, we decided one day we were going to go in. I'm Brother Van. I'm so glad you remember Brother Polk. There's not too many that still remember Brother Polk and And Sister Polk. You remember the old building? Well, I remember when Sister Polk walked in the door and Brother Polk, she told us later, she said, I knew we were home. She says, the first one that I met was Sister Peggy, (coughs) Sister Janet's mother. Sister Rebecca Davis, and she said she came up to me and she gave me a great big hug and she told me how happy she was that I was there and I could sense the love. And she said, I knew that I was home. Do you know what? They didn't know about the doctrine. They didn't know about the practice. But they knew they'd found a home when they came in. And it was because of the way your mother expressed the love to Sister Polk. That fellowship draws you. Blessed be The tie that binds. So the fellowship is what drew me initially. It did. I saw the love between the brothers and sisters. And not only did I see it, but I felt it. That means a lot to a little 15-year-old kid that has absolutely no sense of direction whatsoever. And needs it. And I found out that I had, in my church family, I had a whole lot of fathers and mothers. I had folks that would take me to their house and provide a meal. I had folks that would invite me over for the weekend. I had folks that would later take God's word and open it up and begin to explain. And as I had questions, they didn't Uh, rebuke me for asking questions or make me feel bad about it. But they gently took me and entreated me with God's word. I had folks that took me under their wing to learn these old songs that are so precious to me that I still to this day, when we sing certain songs, I can remember different ones that taught me those songs. It's so, so precious. Those dear folks made a tremendous impact in my life. At an early age, I can't imagine where I would be if I hadn't had that influence of, as it said in Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12, those examples of the faithful ones, those faithful witnesses that are now with the Lord. And I can't imagine where you'd be if you hadn't had them. I mean, they definitely made a difference in our life. You look back on your life and you consider those that have had an impact upon your life. Those that have even gone on to be with the Lord. And and can you imagine where you'd be if you hadn't had that sweet fellowship and influence of those that you've had in your life? What a blessing that those faithful witnesses have been. I'm thankful for the witnesses in God's word. But I tell you what, I'm thankful for the witnesses that he blesses us with here in our life. And by the way, now we are them. We are. The second thing that really drew me to the church that was so precious. It was, I'll use I'll borrow a term, I I think I've heard Brother Danny say it, I've heard others say. The simple form of worship was refreshing. Mm -hmm. It was. It wasn't mixed with a lot of add ons. It's interesting. I like hearing the piano. I admire folks, Caroline, Corbin, Tom Reeves. I used to enjoy hearing him play the fiddle, and I enjoyed that so much. I admire folks that can play musical instruments, and I enjoy hearing it. But did you know that every time I've been in a worship service, I'm talking about myself. Now, maybe you feel differently about that, but if God blesses our singing... And we, our voices come together and we sing and we have uh, harmony within our little body. Did you know that any one of those instruments, it doesn't add to it, it takes away from it. So it's amazing that anything that we try to add, and, and, and I'm not saying this is my, I didn't come up with this plan. God did. You look through the New Testament, you're not going to find a place in the New Testament where there was an addition to the perfect voice that God created in the worship. Not anything wrong with folks playing at the barn with Brother Tom. We used to take, I remember taking your dad out there the last time that he went, Brother John Davis, and boy, he enjoyed that bluegrass, and, and Brother Jim Dixon, and 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 Brother, Brother John Davis, he was sitting in the recliner. Brother Mark hauled a recliner out there, and as Tom Reeves was playing that fiddle, his foot was just beating just like this on the blanket. You could see the blanket going up and down. And he enjoyed every bit of it. It's fine to do that in a setting like that. But anytime we begin to add it to the worship service. Whatever we add actually takes away. From the simple service that God created. We don't have any additions here. We don't have any enticements here. We have the three things that God set up in the worship service. Singing, praying, and preaching. Acts chapter 2. Those three things. We don't have car shows. We don't have bake sales. We don't have carnivals. We don't have those things. One preacher said, if you do those things to get people there, you got to do those things to keep people there. We have only singing, praying, preaching, That's it. And if that's not blessed, then we've missed the mark and we better go home and better start praying that the Lord might bless us the next week because that's all we have. We're totally, completely dependent upon the Lord blessing our singing. We don't have an orchestra. We don't have a choir. We don't have somebody that can play a bunch of instruments and drown us out if we can't sing. We're totally dependent upon... Blending our voices together and then God blessing it with his spirit. And when he does that, even if we don't sing perfectly and we're a little bit off key, it can still bless our souls. Isn't it amazing how he can do that? I don't know about you, but when I get down through the week, I can put on a singing tape or or uh, uh, listen to hymns. And all of a sudden it revives my soul. It lifts me up. So we're totally dependent upon the Lord blessing our singing, praying. We're instructed to come before the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving. We come to the Lord. We pray that he'll bless our worship, that he'll. We have a whole host of prayer requests when we come to the house of the Lord. We have uh, everybody has needs throughout the week. uh, Health issues, job issues, relationship issues that folks deal with. And we bring them together and we present them to the Lord. We come together and we're dependent upon the Lord. Hearing our petitions and our prayers. And then all we have to preach is God's word. Brother Danny is well studied and I and I'm so thankful and I'm blessed by his efforts and his messages. And he studies and and reads other commentators. But I guarantee you that when he's studying and he's reading other writers, that he goes back to this book right here and this trumps, pardon my term here, but this trumps everything else. It does. It doesn't even compare to any commentaries or anything else. Elder Sonny Powell said the best commentary on the Bible is actually the Bible itself. And so you can go over to the Old Testament and the New Testament and it will reference each other. And so Your very best commentary is the Bible itself. But Zechariah chapter eight, here's a picture of the church that the Lord put in his word right here. When I grew up going to church, it was in fact, it was a long time as a little boy before I actually went into the quote church service. My mother would take me and she would drop me off and. I, I, my mother will tell you this. Uh, I, I'll just be totally upfront with you. I like to go to the show, the movie. And on Sunday afternoons, my sister and I could go to the movie and we could go to the movie. And for a whole quarter, we could go to the movie. And for another quarter, we could get popcorn and Coke. And so if we went to Sunday school, my mother would give us 50 cents. On Sunday morning, and then we could go to the movie that afternoon. Do you know that I went for years going to Sunday school and I didn't even know what it was like to go to the regular worship service because I had served, I'd done what I was supposed to. Here's the example that's taught in the scriptures, I believe. Zechariah chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying unto me, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, I was jealous for her with great fury. And then it comes down and it is talking about the church right here. It says, I am returned unto Zion. I'm in the midst of Jerusalem and I'll be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And then here's how he describes the church. And he did this over 2000 years ago. And do you know that it still works today? He says, thus saith the Lord of hosts. There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem and every man with his staff for very age. I'll tell you what, there is a role that the old people feel within the church of Jesus Christ that is super special, that nobody else can feel. They're an encouragement. They're a blessing. They're an example to us. And what a blessing for the young children to see the old people. Brother Farrington, I'm so glad that you're here today because... I, 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 this morning, I got a whole host of phone calls of people that were sick, that weren't going to be able to come. And, and, I, and I miss them terribly that are that are not here. And I, I told Brother Tom and, 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 and then later the Greenfields, I said, I don't know. I don't know who will be here or not. But I said, I can assure you that if he's able, Brother Farrington will be here. And Sister Farrington will as well. He's 95 plus years old. But if he's able, he's going to be at church. And do you know what? Your children need to see that. They need to see the example of a faithful old servant putting it as a priority in their life to be in the house of the Lord. There's a role that the old people feel in the church that's vital. It's important. The second thing he says. He says there's old men and old women there in the streets of Jerusalem, uh, leaning on the staff for very age. And then he says right there in the same picture that he paints right here, he says, and the streets of the city are full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Now, what he's talking about, because he tells us in verse two, he's talking about the picture of the church, of the worship family of God. You've got old people, you've got young people, and they're all right there together. Together, learning lessons from each other. I have to tell you for Brother Farrington and myself and the Greenfields, these children mean the world to us. I appreciate their energy. I appreciate their zeal. As they grow up, I appreciate their vision. I appreciate their encouragement. There's a role that they feel within the church of Jesus Christ that nobody else can feel. They're a great encouragement and blessing to us. So the second thing that drew me to the church of Jesus Christ. And I only have five minutes to, to wrap up the third point. But I'm, I will just want to tell you, the second thing is that simple, simple practice. Elder Compton said, he said he kept a box of songbooks in the back of his car and a few folding chairs. And he said, you know what? No matter where we went, we could just have church. You got a Bible, a few songbooks, and a few folding chairs. You can have church, and brother Van. We've done it up north, haven't we? Even outside, to have church, it doesn't take a big building. Doesn't take an elaborate building. It doesn't take a, 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 a an outline. All it takes is a dedicated group of folks that want to meet together and serve the Lord, and you can have church. I love, love, love. The simple format that God set up in our worship service. Singing, praying, preaching, Acts chapter 2. But the third thing that later drew me to the church. I didn't know it in the beginning. Took a few months of attending on a regular basis and it took a lot of questions. Was the simple, precious doctrine of salvation by grace period. The first song that I ever learned, I was five years old, was Amazing Grace. I've always loved that song. But the more that I begin to know about God's grace, the more I loved it. There's a lot of people that sing Amazing Grace, and they really don't know what they're singing about. They don't realize how amazing God's grace really is. God's grace is amazing. God doesn't have a variety of ways to save people. He doesn't have a way that he saves the aged. i work with folks throughout the week that have dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, and they forget. If they had a filter, it's gone. And they a lot of times don't know what they're saying. And, and God doesn't save them in, under a different format than what he saves the rest of us. God doesn't save these children differently. He saves them the very same. God doesn't save the the unborn infant differently. He saves us all the same. Why is that? He saves us the same way because, first of all, we're taught that we're sinners by nature. We're born sinners. Even if we haven't yet practiced sin, we are born sinners. And then it doesn't take long before we start practicing but it'll begin to manifest itself in our life at a very young age that we have these strong wills, these strong natures, and it opposes what we're taught and told to do. And our sinful nature begins to manifest itself. And then it continues to as we live here in this life. God's grace saves the youngest yet in the womb, and it saves the oldest If they live to be a hundred and ten years old, it's the same way and the same grace that God saves them. God saves the rich and the poor the same way. God saves the one that's the most intelligent and the one that maybe doesn't have that degree of intelligence exactly the same way. God, God saves the worst of sinners, the vilest of sinners. And the Apostle Paul even thought that that was his lot. The very same way that maybe he saves someone that hasn't sinned quite as much. He saves them all the same way. And another thing about God's grace is that he saves us completely. He doesn't save us part of the way. He doesn't make a down payment on our sins. He doesn't make a sacrifice and say, now you have to do something in order to secure your home and salvation. You've been saved and he paid the price completely in full. And God's grace saves every single one of his elect that he knew from before the foundation of the world and his grace will not lose a single one of them. And I tell you what, when I heard that message it did provide rest for my soul. And I've visited a lot of different places, and I've never heard that, that Jesus Christ paid it all. I've heard that Jesus Christ made a payment, but you got to do something in order to secure your home in heaven. Does that mean that God is not working in other areas? Absolutely not. I believe God has a big family. I believe heaven is a large place. And I believe he's got a lot of people there out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe. Because they get there not based on what they do, but based on what he did. In fact, the, uh, let me see if I can read this one. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. It's interesting that the apostles were kind of arguing amongst themselves. And they said, well, who's going to be the greatest when we get in the kingdom? And, of course, he brings the example of the little child and teaches them the lesson of being coming as a little child and as a servant. And Brother Danny brought some great points out about being a servant. But then he says, and it's interesting, he says this right after the example of the apostles trying to determine among themselves who's going to be the greatest. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one, not of our group, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And John says, and we forbade him not because he followeth not with us. I just see John just, you know, holding up his lapel here and saying, well, he's not a primitive Baptist. And so we told him, you shouldn't be casting out devils. And look at what Jesus Christ said. And right before that, they had said, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And he gives the example of little children. And look at how he responds right here. John said. Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him not, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not. He says, For he that is not against us is for us. Did you know what? There's a whole lot of folks out there. Brother Van talked about the persecution of the Christians. I seriously doubt that they all agree and believe exactly the same thing, but they're being persecuted and we ought to be praying for them just as much as we would any as much as we would anyone else. Folks that are of the household of faith, they don't have to see it exactly the way you see it. Did you always understand it the way you understand it now? Wasn't there a journey? Wasn't there a process? We should be Sympathetic. We should be mindful. We should be praying for others along the way because God does works in the lives of all of his people. But if he's given you light and truth and understanding about his amazing grace. Then he just simply says you ought to walk in it. And that means you embrace it. Those are some of the reasons why that I'm a primitive Baptist. The first two drew me. The fellowship drew me. The love, it drew me. The simple form of worship, it suited my case. I've been to other places and I'm just more suited. Maybe it's because I'm from West Texas. I'm not sure, but I'm just more suited to a real simple form of worship. Suits my case. I believe that our simple form of worship. we attempt. Brother Danny says this often when he gets up here. He says, I want to suppress the speaker and build up the Lord. That's why I believe the Lord has a simple form of service. It's not to build up self. It's to build up the Lord. If the Lord doesn't bless our singing, praying and preaching, we might as well go home because that's all we have is depending on the Lord. But what has kept me for about 50 years or so is the truth of the doctrine of God's amazing grace. I love hearing about grace. It's more precious to me now than when I first heard about it. I love his amazing grace because it sets us free from the bondage of thinking that we have to do something that we weren't made to do and we don't have the ability to do. That's why it's a weight and it's a burden is because we're trying to do something we weren't made to do. He did it. He paid the price. And what a joy it is to feast on those principles and those truths. May God bless you.